We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We are continuing to study one of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. Paul wrote many letters to the church in Corinth. We have two of them. We call them 1 and 2 Corinthians, but they are not the first and second letters Paul wrote. Pastor John shared uh, the closing verses last week, and as he was sharing those verses, it reminded me of a time that my dad took me to, at the time, a groundbreaking movie. It was a movie called Jurassic Park. Have any of you ever heard of that? It's about dinosaurs. And I was pretty excited. I was fairly young when it came out. And uh, it was breathtaking. Uh, the, the moment where they drive up, uh, they're in the Jeep, and, and they see that, that brontosaurus or brachiosaurus or... I don't know. It's a dinosaur with a long neck. And just as that part was was on screen, we heard coughing in the back of the theater. And that coughing slowly moved. And this is pre-COVID, guys. So the coughing... Oh, too soon? Okay, sorry, guys. Um, it slowly moved forward, and we realized that someone had sprayed mace in the theater. And so... Everyone evacuated, and I missed the movie. And you might be wondering, what in the world does that have to do with last week's uh, teaching? But let's look at the the verses that Pastor John closed with. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now we know we have victory in Christ. We have have victory uh, over sin. Right now, as we sit here this morning, we've been justified, meaning we've been freed from sin's penalty. We're being sanctified, so we are gaining victory over sin's power. And then one day, we'll stand in the presence of Jesus Christ, and we'll be freed from sin's presence. So there is that victory that we have in Christ over sin. But what Paul's talking about here is we have victory over our suffering as we carry the gospel out to a dying world. Paul has been, and this is a theme that moves throughout 2 Corinthians, that the gospel is being carried forward by God's church. And we will consistently run across adversary adversity. We will consistently struggle to move the gospel forward. We will will experience suffering, but Paul says we we have triumph in Christ. We have victory in him. And then he says, and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. And that's why my mind went back to that theater Now, I don't think what Paul is saying is Christians uh, need to cause the world to choke and cough because of the, the aroma of Christ, but that spray of mace caused a visceral reaction in that theater. The way that we live and love 
the way that we speak, the way we carry about our business, the way we treat our neighbor, the way that we treat people at work, it should cause a visceral reaction. It should bring a fragrance into whatever situation we find ourselves in and cause people to wonder, what is that smell? It may be to them the smell of death leading to death, but to others it's the smell of life leading to life. But we should smell like something, right? Jesus said we all are the what? The salt of the earth. But when salt loses its flavor, it should be cast out and trampled underfoot. We should taste like something. We should smell like something. And that's the the idea that Paul is going to tease out here in chapter 3. Okay, well, what should we smell like? We should obviously smell like something. We, sh- we should diffuse the no- his knowledge in every place. And I know some of you women, you have some of those diffusers, right? Dave Charlesworth has a lavender one. And you take your essential oil and you put a little essential oil in the diffuser and then what happens? The whole room smells like lilacs or whatever essential oil you have. That's what Paul says. You are through us, God diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God, this is what we smell like to God, the fragrance of Christ, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. That's what we smell like to him. He sees Jesus. Verse 16, to the one we are the aroma of death, leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life, leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, But as of from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Throughout 1 Corinthians and now in 2 Corinthians, Paul is constantly bringing the church of Christ back to its purpose. That we should be drawing people to Jesus Christ. To one, we are the aroma aroma of death. Some people need to be reminded that they are dying, separated from a God who loves them. To others, the aroma of life, those who are being saved. But to God, we are the fragrance of Jesus Christ. I ask this, how does our mission get so convoluted? How does it become so easy for the church when the scriptures have made it so clear? How does it become so easy for our purpose to get so convoluted? And I think Paul points it out here. There are so many peddling the word of God. There are so many that desire to hijack the word of God and use it to push their own personal agendas forward. There's a a conference coming out. I don't even remember the name of it, but we have some family, um, some some people that are really excited about that this conference, and they've been sending us links about this conference, and and uh, they're talking about how they can't wait to go. And and Aaron and I were looking at at the the speakers and what's taking place, and it is 
through and through men and women peddling the word of God to become wealthy. One of the speakers says, 2023 is the year of financial independence for you. You've spent years and years accumulating all this debt, buying things that you can't afford, and God is going to deliver you from that. But first, what do you need to do? Sow into our ministry. And when you sow into our ministry, this is exactly what the speaker said, I will release financial independence upon you. And we hear that and we shake our heads and we know that that is wrong and it's misleading and at its worst, it's a false gospel. But there are many hijacking the word of God today, those in politics, those in power, those trying to uh, just do it for financial gain. But Paul says, we do it with a pure conscience. We do it because we love God and we love you. And that's the only thing that matters. Guys, be wary of people who speak the words of Jesus, but their hearts don't reflect the actions of Jesus. Be wary of the, the rhetoric. People who stir up fear and anger and hatred instead of sowing genuine concern and compassion for those who are perishing. That is the purpose of the church. When did Jesus stop being our example? How are we to treat those who have bought into the broken sexual ethics of this world? Look to Jesus. How did he interact with the woman at the well? Someone who had been married multiple times and the man she was with wasn't her husband. Or the woman who was caught in adultery and the Pharisees brought that, that woman before Jesus seeking to test him. The law says we should stone her. What do you say we should do? And he said, you're right, the law does say that. And so if you are without sin, cast the first stone. See, we're all in that place, right? But, but, but somehow we've gotten to uh, this place where it's us versus them instead of us for them. How do we treat or view people who use the power of their political platform to exploit the weak? I mean, that, that's evil. Well, how did Jesus interact with Nicodemus? Someone who had the political power to go and collect taxes and collected far more than, than was due for his own personal benefit. How do we treat those who are deemed unworthy by our society that are too broken to take part in just our daily lives and they live on the fringes. You see them driving to church in the morning. How are we to treat them? How did Jesus treat the man who found himself casting himself into the open flames? And his father pleaded with, him, with Jesus to deliver him. What about the criminals on death row? Well, how did Jesus treat the criminal on the cross? What about those that are, are violently opposing the gospel of, in Christianity? How do we treat them? Do we answer violence with violence? What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them, 
for they don't have any clue what they're doing. When did we lose sight of who we are as the church? We are the body of Christ called to diffuse the fragrance of God. Does that mean we don't stand up for what is right and what is true? What did Jesus say to the woman caught in adultery when everybody left one by one? He said, go and sin no more. God isn't soft on sin, but he's rich in compassion and mercy. We talk about how broken this world has become, but then when did we forget that that's how Jesus found us? We're the broken ones. We're a part of that broken world. The only difference is God saved us. We were broken until Christ found us. And then he didn't take us out of the world, did he? He said, I'm going to leave you here, but I'm not going to leave you alone. Lord, protect them from the evil one because now we are his hands and his feet and his voice. That's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about diffusing the fragrance. And now Paul is going to elaborate on that idea. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, Paul asks. Pastor John said last week, one of the major themes in 2 Corinthians is Paul having to defend himself. Paul planted this church, he labored for this church, he loved the people, he trained them up, and then even after that, when they were falling away, he sent them letters of correction and reproof, and now he's celebrating with them because many responded to that, repented from it, but there are still some that are challenging Paul's authority. Do we begin again to commend ourselves, Paul asks. Do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is of the heart. I remember one Sunday, we were talking about Paul's epistles, and a good friend of mine um, came up afterwards and said, hey, it's pronounced apostles. And I said, oh, it wasn't Chris. But an epistle, what's an epistle? It's a letter. So Paul's saying, do we need letters of recommendation? Do we need letters of recommendation for you or from you? Is that what's going to uh, give my words more authority? But again, why would Paul even bring that up? Because some were challenging the apostleship of Paul, saying he didn't come with letters of recommendation. How can we trust this man? And Paul's like, are you kidding me? I planted the church. I was the one that labored for the church through the power of the Spirit. You are my letter of recommendation. Your transformed lives speak to the work of God in your midst. What do you mean I need a letter of recommendation? 
See, we have to understand this. Paul is not really concerned about defending himself. He's not saying you should listen to me because I'm something. Because I've got all these degrees and all this clout. Paul's defending the authority of the message. He is primarily concerned about the purity of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. So don't take this as Paul simply defending Paul. Paul is concerned about the gospel because it is only by the gospel that mankind is saved, the true gospel, the pure gospel. So he's not saying you should listen to me because I'm Paul and Paul is somebody. He knows his only authority is the fact that his words are not his words at all, but they are God's words. The authority here is not in the messenger. It is in the message. It's, Paul says to the, Galatia, the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Listen to how he views himself versus the message that he brings. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. It's not about the man, it's about the message. And then he's later going to tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom you have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. This is something the church has to be consistently aware of. Paul says, I am afraid that you are buying into false Jesuses. That people are bringing to you a presentation of who Jesus is and what's important to him. And it's not the Jesus of scripture, but you're being deceived. Guys, we can all be deceived. How does a magician work? What's his number one uh, go-to tool when performing magic? Distraction. I'm going to have you look at this while I'm doing this back here. Get your eyes over here so you don't see what I'm doing behind here. Because it's not magic at all, right? It's just sleight of hand. I think the enemy loves doing that with the church. Let's get wrapped up in these issues, obvious issues, and and they're they're legitimate issues, but they're the hot topic issues. issues of today. We could go down a list of them right now, and I could guarantee we pull up some headlines, and we know exactly what we're going to see, right? And I'm not saying those issues aren't significant, and God isn't concerned about those things, but then on the flip side, what's the enemy doing behind the scenes? The enemy uses misdirection. And our only hope is to keep our eyes on the Jesus of Scripture so that when someone comes in 
and tries to hijack the word of God for their own purpose, whether it be political or financial. And it comes down to control, right? We can say, no, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Paul says, I don't need a letter of recommendation to prove I am an apostle. You're my letter. Your very existence is my evidence. You are the result of God's work through me. But then, I love how Paul does this. He doesn't labor on that defense for very long. He immediately moves into, what is the purpose of the church? He says, you are our letter. What makes up a letter? And you learned this in grade school, right? A formal letter, a personal letter. What makes up a letter? It starts with a salutation. If it's formal, to whom it may concern, or if it's personal, dear Abby or whoever. So you have the salutation, you have the body of the letter that contains the information that's to be communicated, and then you have the closing, which contains the author of that letter's signature. Paul gives us all of that. Who is this letter written to? You didn't know there was going to be a test. Who's this letter written to? Take a look at the first few verses. Now, 2 Corinthians is written to the church in Corinth. But Paul is saying, you are our letter. And you are written to, you are to be read by all men. You guys see that, right? Or did I make that up? Do we begin to commend ourselves or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by who? All men. So that's how that letter opens. Dear everybody. Dear everyone. Okay, what's the body of the letter? We'll get to this. But I'll give you a hint. You are an epistle. You are a letter of... Christ. And then who's the author? Signed? Oh, you didn't know you had to think this morning, did you? You are um, an epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, dear everybody, from the spirit of the living God. So what's God writing? We're the letters. We're the communication to the world. We are being sent out, and what are people to read based on the way we live and love and share the truth? What does that letter say? Look at verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So what's in the body of this letter? Simply the new covenant. 
And what's the new covenant? Well, here's another hint from Paul. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We are ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, the Spirit gives life. So what do these letters say? What should our lives profess? I'll sum it up in three words. Come and live. That's what our letter should read. That's what we should be communicating to the world. Come and live. In Jeremiah 31, 31, we learn from the prophet Jeremiah speaking on behalf of the Lord of this future time that we live in now. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them, led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Jeremiah speaks of that old covenant, that law that the nation of Israel consistently broke. It brings death. The law is good. The law is right, but it's a, it's a covenant of, of death and condemnation. But there's a new covenant, a covenant of forgiveness where our sins will be remembered no more. But how is that possible? How can a righteous God overlook the sins of mankind? Hebrews 9.13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And let me give you one more out of Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Paul ties it all together where he, when he writes, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That is the new covenant. It is a covenant of forgiveness. 
It's an invitation to come to a a father who's rich in mercy and compassion. That in this moment in time, God has allowed, God, God has suffered long with the sins of humanity. But now he invites us to come and live through his son, Jesus Christ. We have to get away from this idea that Jesus simply offers a different set of rules to live by. That's often how Jesus is presented, that he's just one diet amongst many. There's a ridiculous number of diets out there, isn't there? We've got the, the keto diet and the Long Beach diet and the South Beach diet and, and the whole grain diet and the David, if you're a true Christian, you've done the David diet where you only eat food from scripture, which might have some merit to it. But there's so many different diets. And we treat the teachings of Jesus and the gospel as if it's just a different way of thinking. It's a different set of morals. It's a different attitude. It's a new way of doing things. It's just one path amongst many to get what you want out of this life, to become successful, to have the opportunity to, to move up. That's not what Jesus offers primarily. He offers life. It's far greater than any of those things. He offers life. He offers an opportunity to live again. We call it being born again. He calls it being born again. That is necessary if we are going to live in the presence of God for eternity, right? Think about a fish. A fish is designed to live in water. You take it out of water and it's dead because it wasn't designed to live that way. We, in our fallen state, before we come to Christ, dead in our sins, we cannot spend eternity with God. We cannot stand in the presence of God. Something has to change. We have to be transformed. We need to be brought to life. We need to become born of the Spirit. Guys, Christianity is just not a a different way of doing things. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that we are dead and separated from God until we turn to him and accept Jesus Christ as our savior. And in that instant, when we trust in the Jesus of scripture, he brings us to life. And he indwells us with his spirit. And we become born of his spirit. And in that state, we get to spend eternity in the presence of God. And we can boldly come before him. Because it's not our righteousness anymore. It's the righteousness of Christ that dwells within us. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus just didn't understand this idea. What, being born again? How... How can I enter my mother's womb again and be born again? And and Jesus said, you're a teacher of the law and you don't understand these things? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that, that which is born of spirit is spirit. There's a new kingdom coming. And Jesus said that that kingdom is already here. Anywhere that God rules and reigns, the kingdom of God is here. 
And he rules and reigns in the hearts of his kids. And that's what we communicate to this world. We've been brought to life. We were dead in our sins. We were cut off from a loving God who created us. But he found us and he saved us. And that's available for you too. And one day he'll return. His kingdom is everlasting. This one's fading. You don't want to be a part of this one. This one's coming to an end. His is eternal. But you got to be transformed. Look at verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, what's Paul talking about there? The law specifically here, the Ten Commandments. Sometimes when Paul talks about the law, he's talking about the Mosaic law. Sometimes he's talking about the entire Old Testament. Sometimes he's just specifically talking about the Ten Commandments. Here, he's very specific, written and engraved on stones. There was a ministry he calls that of death. And he says it was glorious. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? Think about Moses ascending Mount Sinai and receiving the Ten Commandments. We look at that and we're like, man, what a calling that was. What a calling to experience God in those, that dramatic way and bring that message to the people You know what Paul's saying here? Your ministry is more glorious than that. Your calling is more glorious than that. He says, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. The ministry of death was glorious, but the ministry of life in the Spirit is far greater and far more glorious. What Do you guys know what moment Paul is really calling back to in the Exodus narrative? There's this time where Moses' face was glowing. Let me set the stage a little bit. So Moses, we know Moses had a message. Let's think about it in Paul's term. Moses was a letter, if you will. He was a communication. And that communication came on on tablets. And it was a communication from God for Israel. And the message was that of obedience, right? Right? Here is my law, obey and you shall live. I will be your God, you will be my people. Obey my law and you will live. That was the communication. In Exodus 20, 18, we read that all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, what did they do? This is huge, they trembled. 
They were afraid. They were fearful. And what did they do? They stood afar off. So here's the presence of God, and it's terrifying to them. Guys, that's the ministry of the law. God is perfect, and I'm not, and there's nothing I can do about it. That's a terrifying reality, that God is righteous, and he's holy, and he's pure, and I can't get near him because he is that good, and I am that bad. That's the ministry of the law. They stood afar off, and they had, hey, Moses, you go talk to him. We can't speak with him. You go, you go talk to him, you speak on our behalf, and we'll listen to you, Moses, because you're just as sinful as we are, but we don't want to listen to God. Don't let God speak with us. Why? Because if we do, we'll die. They, man, they had a right understanding of God's holiness. So Mo- Moses approaches God, and he receives the law in Exodus 21 through 23, and he delivers it to the people, and there's a call to affirm their willingness to obey. Moses essentially says, will you obey? And what do all the people say? No, we're probably going to break it. No, they're like, yes, yes, this is good, this is right, we will obey. And then in chapters 25 through 31, Moses goes up the mountain, he receives the plans for the tabernacle, and then he receives the tablets of stone on which God engraves the Ten Commandments. And he comes back down the mountain and he finds those obedient people, right? Who are worshiping a golden calf, they're involved in orgies, it's a mess. So Moses throws down these stone tablets and he smashes them. And then he deals harshly with the sin in the camp. But then God invites Moses to come back up the mountain again to receive the law on new tablets of stone. So Moses goes up the mountain again and he meets with God there. And what does he ask God? Show me your glory. I want to see you. And God says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of this rock. And I'm going to pass by you, but you will not see my face. You will see my back as I pass by. So Moses comes down after seeing the glory of God. And he has these new stone tablets God forgives and he renews the covenant with Israel. Moses spent 40 days up there with the Lord. And when he returned, he came down the mountain and his face was shining with the glory of God. And you know how the people responded to that? They were frightened. They were afraid. Even Aaron, the high priest, Moses' brother, was fearful they were afraid to come near Moses, so Moses wore a veil over his play, face to shroud the glory. That, that's what Paul is calling back to. This glory of God that people should fear. And what's the story of the Old Testament? The Israelites, they received the law, and they're disobedient to the law, so they should be afraid. 
That, that's really the, st- I mean, there's so much more to it. There's so many sign points to a coming, uh, signposts to a coming Messiah, but that's really the Old Testament. We are disobedient lawbreakers, and we should be afraid. Even the best of us in the Old Testament, King David, who we present to our children as a hero of our faith, oh, by the way, he was an adulterer and he was a murderer. And then we're studying Solomon Solomon on Wednesday nights, and we can't even get to chapter three, and he's already marrying the princess of Pharaoh and worshiping foreign gods. We're lawbreakers. That's the ministry of stone tablets. That's the message of the law. We are all law breakers. And that's why Moses had to wear that veil. Because that was an aroma of death, really, to the Israelites. But look at verse 12 here. That's not our ministry, guys. Our ministry is not to pick up stones. Ours is a ministry of hope. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Unlike Moses, who covered the glory of God, See, Moses, the glory of God that's shown in the face of Moses is not like the glory that we are being conformed to. For Moses, it was superficial and it was diminishing. It was surface level and it was fading away. But the glory of turning to the, the Lord and, and seeing him with an unveiled face. That's a glory that increases. And it's a glory that is transformative. It's not superficial. It's inward. It's a renewing of the heart and the mind. They say we become like what we behold. And through Christ, our rock, we stand in the cleft of Christ. And we don't have to peer as, as God passes by. We get to come boldly before him because of what Jesus did for us. He has taken the veil of, away and we can stare directly at God because we have the righteousness of Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. And we become like what we behold. 
Just because we have the opportunity to stare into the face of God doesn't mean we do it. Most of us are, spend a lot of our time staring into the face of our phones. And then we wonder why we're so mad at everybody. Because we become like what we behold. If we're constantly watching people who stir up hate and division, then I promise you, and I'm speaking from experience, I know it's, it's so easy for me to say, oh, I'm preaching this to myself first. But guys, I, my heart breaks for the amount of time that I waste not beholding God. and I can say beholding God, and you're like, what are you talking about? Guys, there's so many ways we can behold God. First and foremost, study his word. Sit in his presence. Rest. Slow down. Give him an opportunity to speak. Then come together. That, that line today, this is what heaven looks like. This is what heaven sounds like when we fellowship together. Guys, Paul says you're looking in the mirror, right? And this is something that blows my mind too. When I look in the mirror, you know what I see? I see a broken man with a receding hairline. That's what I see. But when I really stop to think about it, I see a man who was delivered from drug addiction, from self-worship, who has been blessed by God, not because I deserved it, not because I earned it, but because he is a good God that has, who is rich in mercy. When did I get to a place where that wasn't for everyone? We become like what we behold. And if we behold the Lord, we become like the Lord. And we've been talking a lot about spiritual experiences. And Paul in 1 Corinthians, he said, I'd rather you be edified. I'd rather you come together and build one another up instead of looking for a, a spiritual high or a spiritual experience. But that doesn't mean we don't experience God. But this is the depths of experiencing God. When we allow him to work in us, as we look at ourselves in the mirror and we see the Lord working, we are being transformed from glory to glory. So I, again, I ask, do we believe we are a living letter written by God for all men? Is that our purpose? I mean, first we gotta come to terms with that. Is that why we are still here or are we still here to, to protect our comforts? Are we still here to just have our best life now? Or are we here to be a living letter written by God for all men? Because if that is our purpose, we need to start looking at what we're communicating Is it an inv invitation? Come and live. There's forgiveness available. There's life. To those who are in bondage, to their guilt and shame, to those who are fearful of the reality of a perfect God, do our lives speak of God's forgiveness? Paul's going to continue 
As he begins chapter 4, he's going to write, Therefore, since we have this ministry, we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Because it is easy to grow weary in doing good. Especially when our eyes are fixed on the brokenness of this world and not the one who saved us from that brokenness. So we'll get into that in chapter 4. But again, the question I have to step away with is, am I beholding the Lord? Because I want to, I want to, I deeply want to communicate to the world what was communicated to me by Bethany, by Pastor John and Becky, by my parents, by many of you who 23 years ago were on your knees praying for me. That's glory to glory. What are we communicating to this world? Let's pray. I can't, I can't talk about this opportunity to step from death into life that Jesus offers us without giving you an opportunity. And in 2 Corinthians, it's, it's about as clear as it can be. If you've come to a place where you know that you're not alive, that scripture says the aroma of death leading to death, that's where it begins is realizing the things that I'm involved in, they're just dead. My, my life is a trail of broken relationships. There's no value. There's no purpose in what I'm doing. I'm just going from one diet to the next. And I'm not talking about food. I'm talking about whatever the world prescribes as being fulfilling and meaningful and worthwhile. I'm just jumping from one fad to the next. And it starts out fun and exciting, but it ends with me in a worse place than where where I started. Guys, you don't need a new idea or a new way of doing things. You need to be transformed by the spirit of the living God, the one who who breathed into you and gave you life, the one who designed you with a purpose and a plan. And you may wonder, well, how? How can I be brought to life? Paul says, turn to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. He's made a way through his son, Jesus Christ. Let Jesus be your savior. He did the work. He said, it is, he, he gave his life for you on the cross and he said, it's finished. And he rose again three days later. And now he's preparing eternity for us. But I want you to step into eternity. You have to be transformed. You have to be brought back to life. You have to be adopted into the family of God. But no good work will accomplish that. No amount of good works will accomplish that. It has to be through Christ's finished work on the cross. So cry out to God in your heart. Cry out to him. Say, Lord, save me. I believe that you'll forgive me because of Jesus.